Bucks Madness. Man, it feels really dumb to do that when there's other people here. <laughs> Man, it feels super dumb to do that when there's other human beings. Okay, all right, good. Note to, to be self. Fair, I feel dumb doing about anything I normally do when there's other human beings. There, so. That's a good <laughs> darn point. That is a dang good point. Um, that being said, there are other. Hi, welcome back. It's Mark Madness. We're doing it again, but we're doing it differently. We're doing it better, uh, enhanced. <laughs> Uh, and we're doing it because we're doing it with comrades. And that is literally always the most fun we ever have doing this. So uh, that being said, we are very, very lucky to be joined by uh, comrades Cam and Lewis from Whoa. Uh, Cam, Lewis, introduce yourselves. Uh, I'm Lewis Medina from uh, Whoa. Yeah, I'm Cameron. I'm also from Whoa. You might know me as Birthmarks from Twitter. You might know Lewis as uh, Malpraxis from Twitter. Yeah, very good accounts that you all should be following because we've been plugging them ad nauseum. So if you're not already, what if this is if this is what you needed to follow, do it because they're damn good follows. Oh, thank you, thank you. All right, and David's here too, but he's just not saying much yeah. right now. He's, he's yeah, he's no, I mean, well, it's assumed that I'm here. I'd... It's assumed that you're here. Well, I'm not used to not being able to see you, so it's throwing me it's throwing me off I, when I we I, do I, normally do a little camera thing. Yeah, we do normally do a little, or you're sitting in the cave with me. So this is this is uncomfortable yes, for us. It'll be nice we'll when there. we get to do that again. But I mean, pandemic yeah, time, let's are. be real. That's nah, not happening anytime soon. Um, that being said, today we are taking a a brief but uh, exciting detour off of the beaten path of reading every single word from Black Reconstruction in America for the next roughly two years, give or take. Um, and we're taking that detour because we, I mean, as we've kind of been talking about, we we wanted to get into something that kind of dealt with the intersection, like same way we did when we had our uh, Red Menace episode, something that deals with that intersection between theory and praxis, because this is a very important time for that. And, uh, also, we've been selfishly, desperately trying to get uh, the woe people on forever. So we this was a great opportunity, and they wanted to talk about intercommunalism by Huey P. Newton. And uh, damn right, I will take any excuse I can take to get to talk about uh, uh, Huey. So first things first, uh, and, and whoever wants to kind of take this and run with it, we can. But for assume that our, our listeners are like I was when I started, and they know absolutely nothing. Because they don't. They're much smarter than I am. But let's assume they don't know anything. Uh, just kind of who was Huey P. Newton? What was I, I'm a dum-dum. What, what was Huey about? This is where I pretend I don't know so that I get told things so I can know things later. You want to take this? You, you think I should take it? You can take it. Huey P. Newton was uh, one of the co-founders and I think uh, – designated intellectual theorist of the Black Panther Party. And intercommunalism, I think, is his final uh, analysis of our current material conditions. So, Very cool. Uh, when did he write, so just, just to place it in, was it this, did he write it like at the beginning of the Black, like when he first founded it, or was this kind of like something he developed a as he was going? Oh, no, definitely not something that, I mean, they started off, and it's explained in intercommunalism that it started off as, uh, basic black nationalism um, that and it developed from you know from uh, nationalism to uh, internationalism to intercommunalism yeah and we can right. see that and we'll and we'll dig into that that's something and we've kind of explored this a lot as we go I mean from I think the first time David Kirkman from the first time we kind of hit on this because we it didn't really come up in Wretched of the Earth early, but it was when we did Black Bolshevik. That was the first time we really had to engage with what the hell that. What, that was really the first time we got accosted with the the question of nationalism within the United States of how does that look? Yeah. Because 
let's be real, we were reading Marx and Lenin, and they don't really discuss that all that often. Yeah, and it was kind of an interesting uh, thing to run into because, I mean, you know, we're two white dudes in a basement reading books. Um, and then all of a sudden, yeah. like, black nationalism comes up, and it's like, oh, wait, when did this happen? And, you know, <laughs> Hold on a second. <laughs> yeah, that was... We, when yeah, we're we screaming into the void, please, someone come tell us why we're wrong because we desperately want to read this, but we don't want to screw it up. Yeah, that was a fun, that was a fun couple months. Yeah, I mean, we, we basically we knew who Malcolm X was, but we didn't know enough about what made him different um, and what the other strains were and how how complex, you know, black nationalism was and, and how, you know, it was rooted in Garveyism and, and then, of course, rooted later in materials, black national. We didn't know any of that. Um, yeah. So this was also another interesting uh, read going through that. Because this feels like the, the natural extension of what that like, you know, we left it at the last time we had touched it was black Bolshevik. That was in the thir- 30s. And so this kind of feels like the next natural evolution of that that mindset. Um, and a very interesting thing. I think you just mentioned Wretched of the Earth, correct? Oh, yeah. Yes. France Fanon's Wretched of the Earth. I yeah. thought it was very interesting with the way Fanon treated uh, the question of nationalism. Uh, that's sort of essentially the same. Yeah, nationalism's cool. Nationalism can get you only but so far. It has its limits. And mm-hmm. spe- specifically the nationalism of someone being dominated by a colonial or an imperialist power. Not saying an imperialist power is nationalism because an imperial- imperialist power, uh, an imperialist power uh, uh, being practiced through nationalism is inherently reactionary. Yep. When you're colonized, trying to find some nationalism through national liberation struggle. But eventually, if you're only focusing on nationalism and you don't combine that with some sort of uh, materialist uh, class based politics, then you're going to run into contradictions that don't get you to the world that we're all seeking, which is a communist world. And that's what David, I think David brought it up in the last you know episode that, you know, Wretched of the Earth is like broken into on violence, like that first huge chapter that everyone like knows Wretched of the Earth from if they're like mm-hmm. kind of vaguely familiar with it. And then the last four chapters are all and now we're going to deal with nationalism for the whole rest of this book and like where its limitations are and, and all of that kind of stuff. So it's really interesting that that part doesn't get because I think that is I think that's a hugely important part of that book is is dealing with. Because you say nationalism now, and I think almost everyone has a super negative connotation about it. And I think this oh, yeah. kind of explained – this was the first piece I got to read that really just coherently explained, well, yeah, no, it had its limitation. Here's its limitation. Here's the dialectical you know, moving forward from it, and, and then we go from there. And then it's kind of like, oh, well, duh. Okay, yeah, now we've got the next thing. Let's move on to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think – well, you know, Lenin and actually – I think Marx, too, tackles the question um, – and it, it, there was always a debate about the national question and, and oppressed nations because originally people oh, thought yeah. nationalism to be reactionary. But the truth of the matter is that, I mean, the Bolsheviks themselves were part of a Russian nationalist movement. The, mm-hmm. But it's different than the European white nationalism. I mean, Mao, right, I mean, who's been accused of being, in quotes, like a brute nationalist, um, was part, was the left wing of a nation, originally a nationalist movement that eventually had to come into conflict, exactly. right? Uh, after the feudal lords had been overthrown. So, like, oppressed nations, I mean, you know, looking through the history of the Caribbean, right? Oppressed nations uh, have always, you know, um, addressed through national na- uh, nationalist struggle. That's Vinod's whole point. Nationalism within oppressed people isn't something they invented. It was forced upon mm-hmm. them, right, to identify them from their colonial enemies, right? Yeah. And that's really the essential point, and that's why a lot of people, a lot of that is... The, the history of nationalism is whitewashed. The white nationalism is fundamentally different because it comes from an oppressor class. Yeah. 
right? Which means to motivate what the oppressive class is already doing, right? Um, learning nationalism for oppressed people is learning, you know, essentially, in some sense, decolonizing our, our, our psyche, right? Like learning yeah. to love ourselves, learning to love our people, learning to, you know, uh, prioritize our interests, right? Um, because our oppressors, well, they don't naturally have our interests in mind, right? So it's just, and that's, you know, I mean, that's the, the, the conflict, and that's, that's you're right, that the latter portions of uh, Fanon are dedicated to, to peeling away the weaknesses of nationalism in the same way that Lenin peels away the weaknesses of the opportunist, right? I mean, exactly. it's very similar, you know, well, this is this type of nationalist, and this is this type of nationalist, and this is this type of nationalist, right? And this is why they fail. And it's important yeah, so. that we... <clears throat> I was just going to quickly say it's important that we do address Fanon because Fanon was one of the required required readings for the Black Panthers uh, mm-hmm. for on their reading list, and a lot of what it takes to understand the Black Panthers' uh, uh, understanding of U.S. empire is uh, is understood through reading Fanon. So I think with that we could segue back into the text of today, intercommunalism. Yeah. Um, before, before we do that though, because you did transition much better than I think I've ever transitioned on this show, <laughs> I am going to do, I am going to do something traditional then and then, and then, you know, throw a wrench in that of out of curiosity, kind of like a, a, a we're going to Tarantino this and spoiler it and jump ahead in time and then jump backwards. It, it, so obviously Fanon at the time, that understanding of, um, of America, of, of, uh, imperialism of the, the colonized nation within a nation that, that the United States kind of is. Do you, I mean, and again, this is completely conjecture at this point and we, you know, handle however we want, but do you think that's still the, the correct way or the most up to date way to view the American empire as it exists now and the, and our struggles to decolonize from within, or is there anything that you think has surpassed that Mm. Um, surpassed is probably a really bad word there because I don't think none of this ever invalidates the stuff that came before it. It almost just synthesizes. Like, again, it's like when we get to, you know, you start with Lenin and then you get to Mao and you start with, Oh, okay. Well now you're just built. Everything builds on itself. But the word you're looking for is transcend. There we go. Perfect. Can you just host my show, please? Please just come host my show. <laughs> he might try. Don't invite him. No, no, I'm, I'm here for it. No, take this over. I'll just go sit in the back. I've been asking for someone to come kick me out for a while. No, I, 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 uh, I absolutely think that uh, the the analysis is still largely correct. One of the one of the amazing things from reading Fanon and Huey P. Newton is seeing how much of their analysis, especially Huey P. Newton's. Huey P. Newton is oftentimes overlooked and oftentimes discredited by a lot of folks who don't really take him seriously as a theoretician. But back to Fanon, I think Fanon has had the uh, most correct assessment of how imperialism works because a lot of a lot of other writers try to do more to mystify it. I think try to make it seem mm-hmm. like it's uh, it's a lot more complex than it is, and and in a lot of ways he boils it down in a way that's very simple to understand, but he doesn't lose any nuance in the process. He understands that he 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 tells us that he's going to stretch the Marxist understanding of 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 capitalism, right? And he tells us that you have to understand race differently when when you're especially when you're looking at how colonialism functions. Colonialism functions, and that's what allows capitalism to function. And monopoly capital, as practiced all around the world, the the default capitalism that we see is imperialism. And I think. The way Fanon describes it in, in Wretched of the Earth is 
the most on target, except for Lennon, but the most current. <laughs> there you go. And then out of curiosity, has anyone on the, cause this, it's the next one that I, the, the next one I want to read that's off, off the show that I think kind of fought, cause I, this, this particular thread I think has been the most gripping thing since I, I mean, cause I radicalized, uh, again, it, it, the Cardinal sin cam, as I'm sure you're aware too, is I only radicalized about four years ago, which, yeah, which yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> I, know. I, I, I messed up. I messed up bad. Um, people think but, birth Marxist means that I was a Marxist. <laughs> really I do, birthmark of my arm. Portmanteau <laughs> of birthmark and Marxist. Yeah. I thought I was being funny. Go ahead. No. <laughs> nah, it's, it's, it's we're we're gonna we're gonna avoid talking about the hell side as much as possible. But guys, that one that one just always get. But I I, I again I try I try to I'm trying my best to to sh- to not anymore because I recognize the limitations of where I've got. I I I have only have so many hours in the day, and I'm I do not have all the theory. Um, mm. but neo colonialism, mm. uh, from from Kwame Tui, has anyone on this call read that? Because I'm I'm really curious how that. I've just I've just got it, but I've read, um. What is it? Uh, the the handbook of revolutionary warfare, where Nkrumah actually draws a diagram of neocolonialism. But I do. But I would like to go back to the question when we get an opportunity yeah. about if we've reached the stage past um, decolonialism, uh, if that's okay. I want to go back to what Huey, because Huey does say at some point, and I want to give at least what my interpretation of that situation is. Yeah. No. Go for right? it. So. Huey does say that we, can, we cannot we cannot decolonize, right? But what Huey's specifically talking about, I don't know if anybody's read Open Veins of Latin America. Um, he's talking about the the amount of resources that have just been pillaged, right, mm-hmm. from colonized lands that have all moved and sifted and enriched Europe. It's just not physically possible to re-get that, right? But the institutions that have been built from it, um, we got to be very specific with what we mean by decolonialism. Not everybody means the same thing. But the institutions in the land, right, those institutions are built on, right, it's obvious that HUEP believes in taking the people taking control within their community, those institutions, and therefore that land, right? So I don't think HUEP Newton would disagree with many of our contemporaries who who believe in decolonialism. Um, But uh, what what, what HUEP Newton is pushing in, in, uh, intercommunalism are saying that we cannot decolonize is he's 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 uh diverging away from an idealistic view of how decolonialism work things that are just not possible like going back yeah. to the beginning right yeah. he, well i mean it's he's a materialist not, you recognize possible. you know if you look around if there's nothing to there, you know you're not going to go back to a time that doesn't exist too i i i think that's that's a really good thing that that i want to um harp on when we get there too is is one of definitely the quotes i i highlighted is when he sounds really practical because there's some there's some parts where you know he's like we're not idealists you know maybe we're not here but we just assume that one arbitrarily yeah. and it is pretty good <laughs> okay so <laughs> that being said uh i think that kind of covers the the background of of hugh huna was it, not in not in traditional not in traditional march madness fashion or we would have spent four episodes going into like from his birth until every moment of his life because that seems to be our want these days but I think that is a very good uh, primer for what we're going to be talking about here today, which is intercommunalism, uh, which is a work that he had worked on, as we talked about, kind of throughout his life. There were multiple, even in this you know section we're reading from, you know, there were multiple times that this kind of talk or this piece got refined as it was created. And that led to its, its very good uh, introduction here, which is the logic of the thesis of intercommunalism is 
imperialism leads to reactionary intercommunalism, to revolutionary intercommunalism, to pure communism and anarchy. Each of the concepts is in need of definition and redefinition. Uh, we're not going to read the whole thing, but we are going to read the important parts. And that one was pretty important because I understood almost none of it. <laughs> just, just none of it. I read a lot of words and I was like, mm -hmm, I know like two of those. Those are good. Let's define them. Thanks, Huey. <laughs> Uh, so that being said, and again, we're going to go through this because we're not going to yeah. you know, stop and, and say what he was about to say, but you know, uh, we're going to get, we're going to get the good Lenin quote. The imperialist war is ushering in the era of social revolution said Lenin in 1915. Uh, and then there's this quote from a scholar who he gave 16 pages of quotation from that just aren't in this text. Cause no one needs 16 pages of things that aren't Huey in this. Come on guys. Um, <laughs> but the next the kind of jump off point here is that following world war two, and all the technology that it increased, we had this this concept came into be of the the global village that we all hear about, and the, that we're all one world because there are no boundaries anymore. Everyone can get everywhere. There's nothing holding anyone back, and information can move freely. And what does that mean going forward? Yeah. So what Huey identified is that we reached a new stage after World War II that the world had been mapped by imperialism, right? U.S. imperialism. I think we, yep. you know, that's what the the first portion of the of intercommunalism was dedicated to was Huey making very clear that America is a different kind of entity. The USA is a different kind of entity. It's no longer just simply a state, but an empire. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. everything. Every portion of the world is touched by it in one way or another. And that um, either your border is connected, and as we mentioned, like in a neo Nkrumah type way, it's a it's a neo colony, mm -hmm. right? Are, and it's a part of the imperial structure or it's part of the imperial core or you're in, you know, like North Korea, you've built a border to protect mm -hmm. yourself from it. Right. So everybody's mapped from mm -hmm. it. And I think that's I mean, that's that's the point of what stage he's talking about imperialism. So that mapping has caused a change. Right. Mm -hmm. We're a global village, but we're broken up into communities that all fun fall under the the imperialist mm -hmm. empire. Yeah. And that's where. And it's, it's called reactionary intercommunalism. And reactionary communalism is where the communities, institutions like my city council, or they're not mine, right? They're not mine. That's exactly. the point, right? My city council, my police, my streets, my job, my everything within my community, none of it belongs to me. Yeah. So, <clears throat> And you see this that next paragraph there is so, I thought this was, everything Huey did, he did this, it almost felt like almost a very, it had a very obviously he's a Marxist. It had a very Marxist in the same way he approached capital, where he's like, "Oh, well, no, I'm going to absolutely play by the rules." You know, we're uh, who? All right, who makes the rules here? Who's who's setting our boundaries? Well, America's in charge, and they're in, you know they obviously stand for life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. What does that? Let's go forward here, and very and just like in a very just let's interrogate the problem, let's get to the bottom of it, and figure out what's going on. Um, and how is it that you know this this empire that keeps saying outwardly over and over again that you know, freedom is what we value and, and you know, self-determination. And then they constantly seem to be at odds of that over and over and over again. And and this is only up until what, 74, I think is when this was published. I mean, good grief. How yeah. much how much has happened since then that just reinforces how right he was over and over and over again? A lot. Yeah, you, you, you want to take up that up, Cam? Cam's a, pretty much a professionalist in uh, American hypocrisy and American imperialism. Yeah. Hard, hard pass to Cam. Cam, take it away. Hard pass me, catch it, let me mm. take a shot. Uh, the world as it presently exists, and this is what Huey was what explicitly is, is is in a state wherein nation states have declined in their influence, 
because you cannot even say that nation states meaningfully exist anymore because the world is dominated by multinational corporations. All parts of the world are linked to trade, investment, and production net networks dominated by global capital laundered through U.S. empire. Multinational corporations have gotten powerful to the point where they have developed their own sovereignty through and above nation states. Yep. And you have seen this because this is just the way the U.S. empire has allowed for corporations in, in today to account for 157 of the 200 largest entities around the globe, larger than uh, having more wealth than entire nations. So in that way, capitalism has found a way to transcend the state form. And the world, according to Huey P. Newton, as as Lewis was also saying, exists as a dispersed collection of communities. And those communities have a, co a cohesive set of institutions that serve the bulk of the people. And because we're in, inner, uh, we're in a state of inner communalism that is reactionary, the small unit, the, the set of institutions and the small group of people who are primarily served are the ruling class. And that's what makes it reactionary. And this is so. Oh, no, go ahead, Dave. That, I think that was Lewis. I, I, I was about to say something, but <laughs> let Lewis go first. Oh, I was just, yeah, I was just going to reiterate some points there. Um, you said like, you know, Huey's entire point is that, um, that we just don't have control over these institutions, right? We just, everything, like no, no nation on earth is born out of the sovereignty of the people themselves. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't exist even, even, and you know, it's this implication. This is not what he says. Cause he believes that North Korea and other nations are what he identifies as a liberated zone where people have taken control of their community, but they're still not completely a sovereign nation in the fact that they're still being pressed against mm -hmm. their relationships still partially defined by the existence of the U S empire, which it, so I think that's really important. And that just intuitively <clears throat> makes sense because, you know, we see that, that, you know, you, and I think, and he talks about it throughout here that you know, oh, well, you know, you, what defined a nation state? Well, it was I had a boundary, and I could get far enough away from you that I know you wouldn't be coming over the mountain in the next two minutes, so I could probably you know handle my own shit and take care of it for a while, and and I was the boss. And no nation in the world lives in that kind of freedom right now. There is nowhere that can't be touched within hours or minutes or days that that has that sort of autonomy. Absolutely, mm -hmm. nobody. And <clears throat> Huey Huey Newton says something to the effect that um any effort at liberation cannot rely upon the state form or any effort at national liberation or independence while global capitalism exists because that would only lead to subjugation to American empire. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I really, I, I want to kind of jump off that too, to make sure that, that we get some details here because that really reinforce that because those are, those are the best points to, to draw out of here. And he does talk about, he talks about, you know, uh, DPRK, he talks about Cuba um, being, you know, some of these communities. And so when you hear intercommunalism and you think this is a series of communities and this is not a nationalism anymore and you go, well, wait, but these socialist countries exist. And Huey's explicitly going, yeah, that's one of the communities that, that have, you know, pushed out this territory. And so it's not a matter of like size. It's not a matter of this has to be like tiny and small scale and, you know, decentralized within that community. And, and, you know, it's, it's, these are the territories that the people have, at least push back against the United States, but every formalization as a nation also, you know, they're, they're still in relationship to the United States. It is a true empire. He specifically cites that um, 500 uh, corporations using a, a yeah. quote from a U.S. policymaker, that 500 corporations basically control the world. Um, and, and you so, know, that number's gotten smaller since the seventies. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's gotten smaller because they consolidated. Exactly. Cause, yeah. Because that whole consolidation of capital <laughs> thing went on exactly oh. as it's supposed to. Yeah. 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 That's a another topic. Fascism. Yeah. Right. So. <laughs> but no. But it's important because this, I think, I, I think this is add. why when we were going through, you know, uh, and again, not to type it, but our, you know, our progression. If you were to listen to the show front to back, you know, we did capital, we did state and rev. And then again, I was I was bought in by state and rev because I don't think you read state and rev and you don't go like, all right, who we got to kill? Like, let's go. Let's do this. Um, that That's just that's just the nature of that book. But it, yeah. even then, it, imperialism was the first time I kind of went, oh, shit, we're just not talking about abstract concepts. You're you're. Oh, no, that's exactly how the Oh, fuck. That's how the whole world works, isn't it? Damn. Because and this seems like so, this is such a natural progression, a, a leap off of imperialism and off of what that, you know, that concept of here, because Lenin laid out exactly how this whole thing would work. And then he was just going, yeah, and it kept going. <laughs> of course yeah. it did. And there's and some, just, I knew that bank. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. So it, it was, it's, it's occasionally nice when we get to read a thing and I go, oh, I'm so glad I read that other book. Cause now I, now I'm not a complete idiot about this one specific thing. <laughs> Louis, you were saying yeah. something? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I kind of spun off. I just wanted to go back to the idea of, I mean, when we talk about North Korea, it is a nation, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not a complete nation. Just a reminder, you know, that the whole goal was to reunify with South yes. Korea, which America has done everything in its, in its power to stop from happening, right? Yeah. So they're not, like, obviously completely liberated. You know, they're cut off from half their people, um, half the resources that the people uh, would be able to create a flourishing community with. Right. So it's just and I think that's really important. Like, you know, even today. Right. Like you can see, like, why are these so many countries divided by north and south and then American politics? And Huey makes this very clear. That's his, you know, his whole point, because he has to make very clear that the U.S. interests are in the interests of the capitalist. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, before moving on, like, why are these nations divided in half? It, America will tell you that uh, it's because those people do not like each other. <laughs> right and then the north side invaded the south side right it's like well then why does it keep happening <laughs> like it's just like that everywhere you know so i'm um, just pointing out that <clears throat> when we talk about these stages and that's pretty much what everybody's written you to you really hit it when you said like you know everybody comes kind of from Lenin's imperialism everything after that all the way to huey is just reiterating the next stages of imperialism yeah right and how it develops yeah yeah, I mean, that, that gives a good basis, too, of why when we defend nations, people will be like, oh, well, you know, is it really socialist? And, they, and it's like, this is not about checking off tick boxes to, like, we've qualified for the, the right kind of thing. It's like, this is a territory that's been won out, and the questions are, you know, how does how does this territory and whatever level, because you can't get total sovereignty, whatever level of sovereignty relates to the U.S., and how does it serve its people? Those are the only two questions you should really be asking about somewhere that's not exactly. where you live. Yeah, exactly. 100%. How, yeah. much, how, how much control do the people have, have over the institutions? And I mean, everybody, that's debatable because we have all this imperialist propaganda, oh right? But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, then, now, I passed the ball to Cam. All this imperialist propaganda, and it's really tough to escape imperialist propaganda. I'm not going to my mouth. But it's really, it's really tough to escape imperialist propaganda because we are in the belly of the beast. And so it's going to tinge you any 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 sort of way. The fires from being in the belly of the beast are always going to burn the edges a little bit of your understanding of whatever country you're talking about. So any sort of country, no matter what it is, the closer they are to direct democracy, 
the more autocratic they are in, in the in the eyes of the American media and therefore <laughs> the American people. So you can have Venezuela, for example, that actually has a national constituent assembly where real life people gather around the table and say, hey, hey, you know what? Let's make policy directly alongside our policy makers so we can so we can go and vote on the and Cuba has something very similar. And in, in what way do the people in our country, like Cuba has, in what way are we able to actually directly vote on the constitution <laughs> that we've made? We gotta send some 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 jerks all the way up to Washington to vote on something. And we know without a shadow of doubt in our mind, they are already bought and paid for by the corporation. But that's what democracy is, is having some faraway representative who does not respond to your interests, you know that to even get them around the table, you gotta you gotta explain how a corporation is gonna profit from whatever decision they make on your quote unquote behalf. But nah. All these autocratic countries seem to give their people more of a hands-on, uh, hands-on process in the decision making. So it's amazing how the American media will make you think that everyone else in the world is brainwashed, but we're getting the facts. And Huey goes right mm -hmm. into that in the next section where he explains, look, they, hey, you know, you don't have to have it's not like every representative own is a member of a board of a business. That, but he's like, but they don't have to be. They're smart enough to know that it only need one, it's going to naturally flow towards us anyway. And two, if we just put enough of us in there, we only need like 10 or 12 in high ranking positions and we can kind of get done everything we need to get done. And it's just such an, uh, like, it's like, oh, well, that can't be. Google like every treasury secretary for the last like 100 years and then go see where they worked. Like, fucking yep. tell yeah. me he's wrong. Like, this isn't, this is obviously how this goes. And he's just and he just says it so matter of factly, like it's like, well, yeah, obviously, duh. What are you talking about? Of course, that's how that th this happens. Why are you even questioning it? Yeah, um, I mean, Trump's Trump's White to... House. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Dave. Oh, I was just gonna say Trump's White House makes that so explicitly and abundantly clear. Um, I mean, I I know I'm I'm a quote unquote millennial. I'm I'm in my mid thirties, and so I very much remember '90s media and '90s media, the ultimate capitalist that was referenced. Uh, whether it was in sitcoms or, you know, a, a joke at a standup is Donald Trump. Like, if you want to say you're rich, you go brag yeah. to Donald Trump and look who the hell's president now. Right. That's um, weird. And it's so weird. <laughs> yeah. Just rip the, the I, I do. You got to appreciate them just ripping the mask off occasionally, though. It's not it makes oh it so much easier to, to have these conversations where they're not doing fun, like Obama era stuff where they're like covertly putting the CEO of Goldman Sachs in place and then making us think that that's somehow a progressive, woke, awesome thing to do. Now, let me be clear. I'm <laughs> going to progressively put the uh, chairman of Goldman Sachs uh, into my gap. <laughs> See? We're going, to do it, and we're going to do it very nicely. Cam, Cam, you're on the show anytime you want to be because I'm not. I can't do an Obama impression, and I need that so many times. We've tried that, and it, just it was so worked. perfect down to even the pauses. It was amazing. <laughs> it was like, have you been studying with Pete Buttigieg? Have you been working with Buttigieg to get that that cadence down? Oh man, I, I, I guess I should. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's 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 interesting because at least when Donald Trump steals, he's the one with the cartoonish uh, dollar signs on the bags of money. Yes, it's a lot simpler for us to explain the hypocrisy of American empire and the myth of American innocence when they don't act so innocent and they do not uh, continue telling the, the myths of American empire. Like Obama had that voice where you just listen to him and you just go to sleep knowing that everything's going to be OK. He was like the liberal version of Ronald Reagan. 
Oh Honestly. my God! Yes. Yes. Yo, 100%. Yeah, liberal version of Ronald Reagan. And so Trump comes in. He just says, well, you know, you know, just just goes off on it. And then you're just like, damn. All right. I get I guess America is just openly playing the gangster game now. <laughs> oh, man. And you play a mafia with, with the pistols out and they just telling you, they just telling you <laughs> you're on the street and, they, and you're just going to have to be cool with it. Like they openly saying, like we're just gonna break your legs, and then everyone and you see everyone in the American media uh, American media sphere trying to spin it and say, "Oh, this is so un-American." It must be influenced by Russia or China. And Huey talks about that's that. That's American thing. Huey, Huey talks about it. Everyone talks about how um, Western media uh, plays up on our biases about who how good we actually are as a country, and. Huey, like you, like you notice, like, duh, no, it's not true. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And and, and, the, and the important thing he said, and I'm and I will let end, I will end this monologue real quick. Is uh, <laughs> he, he he said something to the effect of um, I think he said for you not to be in the interest of the the corporate class, and I, I'm putting in my own words, will be political suicide. Yeah, because they're the ones who control you in U.S. empire. Uh, honestly, I think that's a great. Uh, a great thing to, to to finish a little monologue with because it was what I was going to uh, mention was probably the next part I want to quote word for word out of the book because that's that's Absolutely. I love it because it's it it not only reiterates what's so important for us to understand about a ruling class but he he makes it like feel and it, it's so down to earth he says this does not mean of course that the business community as such must prefer a particular candidate or party for that candidate or party to be victorious. It means much more fundamentally that the shortcoming, that short of committing political suicide, no party or government can step outside the framework of the corporate system and its politics and embark on a course which consistently threatens the power and privileges of giant corporations. So he, I mean, he basically kind of uh, explains it like a rat maze, and like yeah. you know, you, you step outside, you get zapped, and you got to go back in, and and you know, you know that that's the no zone. You don't do that, right? But he, but he also highlights that consistently part, and I think that's important because it's not like. Again, it's not like they set like a hard boundary where it's like, all right, you can't progress beyond this. But we saw it, and and I mean, and you guys, uh, Cam and Lewis, you guys talked about it on the the episode you guys did with Revlet that they will offer, like they they know for a fact how far they can go and how far they can't. So they know yep. twelve hundred dollars is okay because that's a one time thing. But if I give you UBI, I will never get that away. How long have yep. they been trying to take away Medicare and Social Security? They, you well, give and they, human beings a social program, they will not give it back like over their dead body, and they know yeah. that. And they they know also that like if they do give you UBI, um, they're going to strip away all of the other social programs from it that they've been stripping away anyway. Um, you know, I mean, they they've got to find ways to they've got to know how to sell things, and they've got to find ways they know how much to give because they'll strip everything away. Everything they give you, they'll just rip right back. But they know it takes years to get back. But they some know it of takes it's harder than little, others. Some yeah, of it's harder it's, than others. It is harder than others, and it's a death of a thousand cuts thing. You know, I mean, they they cut down public transport, chip, 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 chip. They don't go in and just you know unplug everything they just plugged in. Um, so they know how far they can go to to chip it back away. But you look, and Huey talks about it. You look at the priorities where these people, you know, why why is the mil, you know, why are we building military and highway and and these kind of infrastructures as opposed, you know, it, you know where their priorities lie because look where they spend their money, look where they're going consistently with their with their pockets. Yep. Yeah. <sighs> Damn. Oh, can I interrupt for a second? Always, I, yes. We forgot to wish people a 
Happy Juneteenth. Holy oh, shit. Yeah. Oh, damn. How do yeah. we do? Oh, fuck. All right. I was thinking. I mean, I forget about that. I'm the black guy up here. The, <laughs> we were about, uh, see, I was just thinking about how corporations, you know, um, are, the, you know, the, the infrastructure buys people off. And now, now we reach a point that's so fascist that they literally are trying to buy people off with nothing. Oh, man. Yeah. Right. Like literally absolutely nothing, you know, like, hey, Juneteenth or hey, you know, or, you know, police are, you know, on their Twitter being like, we believe in black lives oh my and they matter. How they it's the police foundation just, said that on their it's Twitter everywhere. account. It's so, it's so strong. It's so powerful. But it's like literally it cost them zero. Right. Um, no tenable reforms except for, um, you know, Minneapolis. A lot of things had to get burned down first. Yeah, yeah. Right? And, and so. Minneapolis, not even we're not even sure if they could actually go through with the things that they're talking about because yeah. it's written into the very uh, the very bylaws of 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 the um, the city council that it's not really within their purview of actually defunding the police. But hopefully, it does happen. But the only people who are even able to get anything close to that, like Lewis said, is Minneapolis because they threatened to like, all right, we'll burn this whole. This whole thing down if you guys don't give us what we want. But they didn't threaten. They burned. They burned part of it down and then said, "We'll keep. It. We'll keep burning <laughs> if you don't give us what we want." And they'll keep doing it. But the thing is, like the rest of us are out here dancing with cops, oh, um, God damn. and 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 shaking their hands and hugging them, and all we get is Black Lives Matter painted on the street. So now that when the cops shoot me, I can die on Black Lives Matter Avenue. Hold on, <laughs> we also got. Nancy Pelosi kneeling in a kente cloth, and that is it. Come on! Oh my God! What more could could she possibly do? And and this shows you. This shows you how empty liberalism is. This shows you the absolute bankruptcy of liberalism. Liberalism only offer you reforms, and you see how quickly when you threaten the very facets of white supremacy and capitalism, which is property. Like whiteness is very much constructed on property because a lot of white society. Uh, sees property as an extension of themselves. So when you attack businesses, it's considered violence because the only time uh, white folks could extend any sort of empathy towards black people or sympathy towards black people, the height of it was during slavery because at least then we were shadow, we were we were chattel. So then you could value us as property, but now that we're not property, we can't really be valued in the same way that I don't know breaking a window of a CVS. Or burning down a Wendy's is because like, hey, 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 something so violent. I remember when the whole Kevin Scott thing happened in Charlotte. There was a headline that said, um, what did it say? Police shoot unarmed black man. City erupts in violence. Notice what is framed as violent in that in that sort yeah. of sentence. <laughs> the police shooting is not violent. That's written on the ledger at the beginning of the year. The violence is the people rebelling and uprising against the act of police brutality, the act of murder on the, on the side of the state. The state sanctioned violence. Because it's sanctioned by the state, it's expected by the capitalist state to continuously murder black and brown people. And so we, we, we do commemorate Juneteenth, but we also remember that while Juneteenth was celebrating the end of one form of slavery, there are still many more insidious forms of slavery that still exist because slavery was never truly abolished. It was just reformed. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Okay. Which, which means, which means that we should start talking about liberated zones. We're at the last, we we are at the last phase, I think, of talking about intercommunalism. We've hit three steps. Can y'all hear me? Yeah, we got you. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. So we talked about imperialism. 
which Cam can kill. I mean, Cam just revealed, like, you know, what Huey P. Newton's whole point was, is that uh, U.S. lies, 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 and if you pay close enough attention, it is always in the interest of the capitalist, right? Yeah. Um, and then we, we've talked about reactionary intercommunalism, which is the stage we're at. Uh, so we talk about revolutionary intercommunalism, right? And, and debate it, because I'm, you know, it's somebody who believes in intercommunalism, I'm not completely sure either, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, did, do you have the section highlighted where it's identified what revolutionary intercommunalism is? I don't think we hit... Say, 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 yeah, one more time. Yeah, okay. So revolutionary intercommunalism, uh, Lewis and I have described it in the past as radical good neighbor, neighborliness. It's the process by which folks establish liberated zones within the larger empire, wherein communities seize the social machinery and its technologies from empire, and then you're redirected towards specific community need. So what does that look like? It looks like establishing truly democratic and autonomous institutions created by the community for the community, free from the social order and the influence of the empire. And so this is what this sort of refers to what I was saying earlier when I said any efforts at attaining liberation cannot rely upon the state or any effort at national sovereignty or independence while global capitalism exists because it would only lead to the subjugation to the American empire. So your effort to getting your liberation has to run against your U.S. empire. And that's naturally going to create an antagonism and you have to be ready for that blowback. Um, so what are some examples of what it might look like in your real in your everyday life? It looks like establishing community uh, community defense. It looks like establishing mutual aid services. It looks like establishing care network. It looks like all of that. It looks like doing everything the Black Panthers and the Young Lords and others were doing, right? And what Woe is trying to do, right? And what many others are trying to do, like even in even in Long Beach, we have the People's Revolutionary Party. Long Beach, they're doing things similar to that. People's Breakfast, Oakland, doing things like that, walking into the same vein of what the Black Panthers were trying to establish, these intercommunalist liberated zone with communities. Mm-hmm. So that being said, I, again, as the designated mm-hmm. dumb person on the show, need to ask, <laughs> as is as is my want and as is the thing, we, we, we try and always, we're tying this back to, all right, so what does that look like now? Give me, you know, we're looking at examples and the most, if anyone listening to this right now, the most prominent striking example they're going to have of something that we're like, okay, a liberated zone. So what, you know, Capitol Hill, yeah. that zone right there, is that, in this vein, what do you? What is your guys' opinion of, of of how that fits in with this particular part of the theory? Uh, <laughs> we we, we take this. And, and yes and no. Uh, yeah. Lewis, you want to go first? <laughs> no, you go, you go ahead first. Okay, uh, and I'll and I'll spin off of you. Okay, yeah. So at the very beginning, it w- is is it has, it has its good and it has its bad. Okay, so I'll say in the very beginning, the way Chaz came to came to happen was a lot of black and brown organizers along with white organizers, a lot of them more anarchists, but not not exclusively anarchists, were able to seize uh, so, some some territory that was left behind because the police abandoned the precinct in that area. And they established what they called an autonomous zone where they were existing cooperatively. They were creating murals to the folks slain by the police. They were providing water and food to the houseless folks and the folks who are within that autonomous zone. And they were talking about, and they were giving classes on decolonization and things like that, you know, really great stuff. But then after a while, according to some folks on the ground, uh, it sort of morphed into more of a uh, festival atmosphere. And this is not, this is not, this is not at me. This is not me critiquing the, the, uh, uh, what the organizers on the ground have 
worked really hard to make happen. But this is some of the critiques of black and indigenous people on the ground that some of the white folks sort of made it into more of a happy fun time instead of a, hey, let's this is a revolutionary tactic that we're trying to that we're trying to employ in the middle of empire in response to fascistic violence. And so it's, it's good because you more than a million essays you can write about what a liberated zone or what autonomous zone can look like is you can point to a material example of, of an attempt at that. And then you can have folks, Hey, we can have something like that. Remember when this, this thing happened here, this is, this is what we can have, but we can, we can improve on some of the deficiencies or we can improve on this. We can improve on that. So I think Ch uh, Chaz is a good project. It's a good first step, but the uh, limitations to it have to be addressed. And I think the organizers on the ground are doing a fantastic job of trying to address the limitations. And I think more things all across the country need to pop up like it. And if we can do that, establishing parallel infrastructures, we can make it hard for the system to function as the status quo. And then we can move toward a, revolu a revolutionary rupture from capitalism. Yeah. The, yeah. I want to spin off of what Cam's saying, um, in my opinion, on these autonomous zones. I mean, they're called autonomous zones, not liberated zones, right? Correct. So, And I'm going to make an analogy here with the the black uprising like the black uprising is is demonstrating the, the power to the people and what needs to happen just for reform to happen yeah right yeah. and it's our job to be pushing that you know in any area that we are like demonstrating the fact that look this is what had to happen just for a simple reform the almost the entire u.s had to get burnt down right um and in the same case, what this sort of anarchist movement, these autonomous movements have demonstrated is that people can coexist without the state. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So they don't they're not liberated insofar as that they've taken control of the mechanisms. They haven't created people, institutions that can live by themselves. Right. Separated um, and start like, you know, making real democracy. But it demonstrates that people are not inherently violent. They do not need the police to come in and kill them. Mm -hmm. You know, they do not need. You know, um, they do not need uh, the state to control and mandate decisions for them. They can live together. And I think that's really important as a demonstration to people. So I think, though, I mean, it's getting a lot of slack online. I do think the project's a success. I think people really need to, you know, I mean, the Paris Commune was it was one of the jumping off points for Marx and all his contemporaries, understanding, you know, okay, that happened and it was cool, right? And just <laughs> like, you know, the Black Uprising, which was really, really cool and really, really important and changed the world materially, right? And those things are actually partially connected. Mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's just the stages of revolutionary development. And Marxist-Leninist types need to spend less time just criticizing. I mean, we have to critique, right? Of course. But, um, and, but also, like, analyzing, so what is the next step, Yeah. right? Because that's what yeah. a true Marxist-Leninist, what is the next step? What went wrong? How do we do this? And I think, you know, autonomous zones prove that um, you know, generating liberation zones possible. Like Huey P. Yeah. Newton's a, theor a theorist in his own right and needs to be needs to be read and understood. And we need to start really looking at like, well, then how do we actually can take control of the institutions around us? Right. And how do I stop paying this landlord? Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't because that's, I think, the thing that jumped out. I mean, when we we're talking about and I, I love, Lewis, that you you highlighted the they're calling themselves autonomous zones and not liberated zones. And you could be like, well, that's semantic, but it, it's really not when you listen to what Huey talks about as what makes up a liberated zone. Does, does Chaz have access to the mechanisms of capital in there? No, but I mean, that's, that's but that's at the end of the day, that's, 
that's something that like to me i was like okay so shit i sit here in a closet and i've analyzed this shit to no end and i can i can freaking tell you exactly you know where i think the paris commie went wrong but i mean big jock energy just went out there and and fucking <laughs> took a block like i mean fuck dude what all right maybe i got this wrong like shit okay like maybe I could come in later, but okay, I need to make some tall lineman buddies. God damn! <laughs> this uh, yeah. that actually brings me back to one of Huey's points that wasn't highlighted, um, and some people have been abusing this part portion of the text. But um, Huey says that he's not a Marxist; he's a dialectical materialist, and a lot of people have taken yes. up this rhetoric, rhetoric now. And his yeah. point was that at the time, and we can see it today, that and it's not going to it's. Not going to last because uh, capitalism seems to be degenerating very quickly yeah um but and crystallized into into his only being historical materialists no longer dialectical materialists that's the huge part so can real quick can you can and anyone who wants to jump in does someone want to explain the difference between historic because again as a dumb person i was like historical materialist yeah that's kind of what i am and then he was like no that's a bad thing i'm like oh shit all right that's not what i am i'm bad i'm sorry i'm out and then he explained (laughs) dialectical materialism that makes far more sense um yeah i could go ahead and explain uh how i would interpret it um the you know as a marxist you have to understand the the dialectical and historical materialism has never actually been separate right so you 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 study historical contradictions and historical class development so that you can understand where you are presently right and so that when you understand uh where you were how you got there now you know what the next step is it's supposed to inform your praxis but, you know, basically what he was saying is they turned into a bunch of intellectuals. You can see it today. A lot of Marxist Leninists like to pretend like, you know, they're, you know, in Russia 100 years ago. Oh and God. he was like, the, the, the conditions have changed in 100 years. Right? Well, he did say it like that because he was, you know, Huey was in a lot of these situations actually really respectful. Um, uh, but they have changed. Lots of things have changed. It's no longer, you know, Lenin's right. Right. Uh, Lenin said very important things that people need to read it, but you need to understand our development and understand uh, what is to be done now, which is very different. It's not, I mean, not completely fundamentally different. You know, Huey's implying that what we need to do is be Lenin in our communities, right? Yeah. And be Mao in our communities, really, a lot of Mao in our communities, um, and start generating those types of socialist relationships, right? Because as you can see, these little autonomous zones and the black uprising really weakened capital. The pandemic oh, really weakened oh my capital. God, yes. It, they got so it, scared. They're vulnerable in here. Like inside the core, they're vulnerable, right? So setting up a liberated zone, right, effectively, I mean, ef- effectively weakens the empire in a way that, you know, um, our comrades outside of the U.S. border can't because all the guns are pointed towards them, right? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I think, and I don't know, I, I know one, someone had mentioned it, and I think, Lewis, it may have been you, but that this whole thing is kind of, we're kind of very quickly realizing that the the center of in uh, of the Imperial Corps is a lot more uh, vulnerable than the exterior. Yeah. It's very yeah. vulnerable. Very, it's very vulnerable because, I mean, we're catching in the point and, you know, being a millennial, we've seen, yeah, I think it was David being a millennial, um, being a millennial, yeah. like <laughs> we've seen it decaying for a while. Like, you know, you have the oh 90s, then you have the proletariat. Our whole lives. Export out. Yeah. Our entire lives is the housing market, war, war, war. Mm-hmm. Now we're in the middle of the become poor, poor, poor. You know what I'm saying? It's it's very vulnerable. Um, 
anyway, we might be seeing the last, you know, and I, I don't know. Marshall's letting us get this shit all the time, but <laughs> <laughs> make your predictions and being like wrong revolutions. But we might be in the last, you know, death, like, you know, death cries of, uh, we're always of the right US. about foreign policy. We're not really right about domestic policy. Nah, yeah. Nah, <laughs> right. yeah. We're always right. We're always right when we say, hey, man, this, this popular uprising you're supporting on Twitter, along with Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, Ilhan Omar, AOC, and uh, John Bolton. Yeah. yeah, that's probably supported by the NED and the CIA. No, it's not. See all these popular people coming out in the street popularly protesting against their authoritarian government, man? That's authority. <laughs> uh, well, actually, uh, it turned out you guys were right. Actually, it was the CIA the entire time. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What did we say that? Two weeks ago? But, yeah. All right. <laughs> then I turn around yeah. and go, yeah, this is why you need to read theory. And then again, I got family out in the West going, fuck no, just brr, run at them real quick. They'll go away. I'm like, God yeah, damn yeah, it. Yeah. Why you gotta, uh, I gotta figure this out. Then you talk about praxis and you can cut this, but you talk about praxis, <laughs> and, you, and I sound like Alan Iverson. But they talk. About <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you talk about praxis, people say, "Oh, you gotta be one hundred percent praxis." I'm like, "All right, let's do an etymology of the word praxis. What does praxis mean?" Oh, applied theory. So, so even in the word praxis, it's telling you to read theory. So you gotta do both. Yeah. It's open dialectical only at first. Oh my goodness, but yeah, you can cut that. Nah, no, yeah. no. Well, no, because all you did, all you did, was a, a much more raw uh, version of our outro, which is David explaining that theory and practice don't mean shit unless you combine them and, and weave them into each oh. other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But everyone calls no, that's Ian Lewis theory nerds as if we're not like out here organizing. <laughs> we're organizing. Uh, we're doing pandemic. We're literally not doing this shit for our health. Nah, <laughs> no, I'm a theory nerd. Y'all, y'all are not theory nerds. Trust me. There's, there's a, there's a hierarchy in here. <laughs> Oh shit, the anarchists are gonna stop listening. I said the word higher. Oh, Fuck! Oh no. organization. He's 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 our resident anarchist. Yeah, we have yeah, we've got some anarchists. We've got everyone does because we all want the same goddamn we all want the same shit. I don't know why we're fighting. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I mean international politics, but there are plenty of anarchists <laughs> with good international politics. They just yeah. you know, yeah. they're just not yeah. the loudest voices that appear. You know, during imperialist propaganda I mean, on yeah. Twitter, they're not, not the like ones that are going to be it's elevated. Not like any, it's not like any anarchists that we know are making international policy. So who gives a fuck? Like, fuck, we just yeah. gotta we gotta deal with our own shit. Like, we'll have a yeah, shitty yeah. opinion. I ain't here to fight you. We gotta go. We gotta go take an autonomous zone next door. Let's go do some shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. That's actually, you know, and I think that's really important too. Like looking at Huey's theory because you mentioned like, okay, well, intercommunalism and these like socialist uh, nations. You know, I mean, Huey was writing his theory. It wasn't like they were fighting about this theory because they didn't have a reason to have a fight about it, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. And it, and you notice intercommunalism isn't mentioning that we need to develop a state. Yeah. A lot of these nationalist movements, and this is, includes, you know, uh, different Caribbean nationalists, black nationalists, uh, you know. Um, indigenous nationalists, they, they, Garvey was able to attract a lot of, you know, um, socialists and anarchists behind that original nationalist banner. And what Huey's doing here is making sectarian, uh, analysis in which, look, it's not about the state anymore. It's about taking, seizing our communities, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. To where anarchists, if they, if they can stand us Marxist Leninists long enough, right, uh, <laughs> will promote it's something yeah. they they do and believe in yeah. right 
So, I mean, that's, you know, we say woe is an inner revolutionary alliance. Yeah. We mean it, right? Um, we've got, we've got Maoists, we've got anarchists, we've got, you know, multiple uh, Marxist Leninists. Even me and Cameron, we have disagreements that we're like pretty firmly planted in Marxist Leninist yeah. camp. Um, and we work together. And that, what changes that, that type of sectarianism, right? I mean, we have to fight with it, we have to struggle mm-hmm. with it. Uh, is the practice yeah. right going out and and meeting your community and and you know struggling together against your establishment a lot of the things that you fundamentally you have you seem about start because the truth of the matter is that is, is it going to be a state in the u.s or not i mean it's really hard to tell it does like the state is a conglomerate of different communities mm-hmm. right that are very alienated from each other mm-hmm. who knows but we know that whatever comes about Right. It's going to have to come about from the people. So we got to get the people on our page first. Yeah. Right. And Huey hammers that so well throughout throughout this whole work of, look, we're, we're dialectical materialists. Does that mean we we know what the future is going to hold? No. He says it all the time that there's there's levels of this that I'm not going to have any idea about. All I can do is work within the conditions I have with the knowledge I have and adapt it to that. And I think that's something that we've I yeah. mean, I, the last I, month has proven that, David. I, I want to go on along with what you're saying there, Nathan. Is something I, I really noticed a lot in the work is is Huey again. You know, I talked about him sounding very down to earth, and that's where I I wanted to bring up that original part about the the two parties and businesses in humility, where he's you know there, there's even some sarcastic parts where he's like, well, you know, we could be materialist or idealist, but we just <laughs> arbitrarily picked one, and it it seems to make more sense, right? <laughs> as a yeah. philosophy as a philosophy major, I just yeah. wanted to like go back in time and high five Huey right there, like fuck yeah, yeah let's stop. Yeah, Why do I have to take a whole class on this shit. That part was hilarious. Yeah. So we, I mean, that struck us, you know, I believe, you know, these practical assumptions, right. Are just mm-hmm. great. Like yeah. we're just picking this because it, it makes enough sense to us and doesn't justify it at all. Doesn't even like, yeah. you know, address what, you know, why idealism might be wrong. Who cares? We picked, we picked one. We're moving forward. <laughs> right. Right. And, and so he does that the whole time. And, and he, when he gets to talking about, dialectical materialism you know over historical uh materialism and and kind of tying it back to the the chaz i also like that that we brought up paris commune because we don't have to look at it from a historical materialist perspective and go like this is exactly the paris commune it'll have the same problems it'll turn out the same way and then you know 30 years later some part of of our continent will get you know that's not how it's going to work but we can compare it to the, the paris commune and compare it to our own conditions and go okay how does this relate how is this different? And and we the important thing we saw in the Paris Commune is Marx looked at it and went, okay, this is my inspiration. Now I have now I have a real world application of what we can do. And Lennon looked at it and says, I have a real world real world example uh, that I can jump off of and and make a government structure with. And that also allowed him to to look uh, at democratic centralization from there because mm-hmm. that's that's what the Paris Commune lacked. You know, we can look at the Chaz and not necessarily say, you know, they got these many things right, they got these many things wrong. We can look at, uh, at uh, um, information and go, hey, what can we take from this? What can we learn from this? You know, look, they took that. Look, look what we can do, you know, and, and look what lessons we can learn from their successes, from how hard they're working on it from the inside, things like that. So we're, we're not looking at it, expecting it to fail, expecting it to succeed. Oh, yeah. We're just looking at it for, for inspiration. It's great. It's, it's, 
we don't want to not see them succeed. Yeah. We want to enjoy that we have a whole nother yeah. a whole nother door open, a whole nother possibility to look into. And you gotta yeah. take it. I mean, Marx did it himself. I, I think they were people were pointing this out on Twitter, and we talked about it when we did our Paris Commune episodes. But it was uh, Marx. Every minute up until the commune was like, this is a bad idea. Shouldn't do this. Here's the 15 reasons why you shouldn't do this. Please don't do this. This is probably not going to work. And then the second it kicked off, it was just like full cheerleader mode. Like, fuck yeah, go get it. Let's do this. All right. I am in full support of this because that's, we're all parts of every part of this weird leftist, you know, thing that we're a part of. We all have our role to play. There's people that are going to be thinking about it too hard. And there's people that are going to want to go at it too hard. And we all balance each other out instead of fighting about it. We just need to kind of realize each other's strengths and weaknesses and work as a team. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Those contradictions even within your own organizations. Because you have people with different personality types, but you have to come together under, okay, now I'm about to sound like a democratic centralist because that's what I am. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You got to come together after having a whole lot of debate. And when you come to a decision as an organization, you got to move as an organization, come to a decision. Hold your line. You got to move as a party. You gotta you gotta move on one line. And you gotta and you gotta do it so that you can have unity through action. And you can have perfect people power with imperfect oh, people. Yeah. And we talked about that a, a whole boatload during uh, Black Bolshevik. Is that I did I don't think I understood democratic centralism until I read that book mm-hmm. because it, it, it's so you just see this like you see a line and you see it as like, all right, we're all, we're, and you think of that again, you have that brainwashed or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that book, good God, like they came up with one party line. And it was like four chapters of debate about the part. It's like, Holy shit. They debate this more than we're debating like internet leftism. And that's like all we do 24 seven, like shit. But then they made a decision and they stuck to it. And there's a power to that unity. And we have, to, I, again, capitalism wants us to fight amongst ourselves. It wants us to, to argue amongst ourselves because they're unified. They've got their line. It's capital, baby. We have to have an equally unified line or we're never going to get anywhere. Yep. That's true. And that's, I mean, we talk about left unity. I, I, I personally, I'm a sectarian if you're a reformist, right? <laughs> um, I, that's where I cut the line. They seem to be talking about unity the most, but uh, revolutionaries don't want to work with them for a reason, yeah. right? So, the, the, but, you know, I mean, the, we talk about, uh, developing unity in some sense. I, I hate to bring up Stalin. People should read Stalin, but Stalin talks about this. The, hold on, hold know, on, real quick. Just pause, pause for a second, Louis. Just gonna take a moment to look up at the picture of Stalin in the pod cave. Just tap it real quick. <laughs> all right, all right. Keep going, keep going. Let's keep talking about Stalin. Stalin, Stalin gives a, a lot of uh, examples at the end of uh, you know principles of Leninism, um, just explaining how organizations have to work. Right. You know, and the idea that, you know, and even organizations that external being part and even auxiliaries to the movement. Right. That they're still doing what they do, even if they, in some sense, don't agree with the party, you know, and install in lots of ways was, you know, talking about unionists. Right. Talking about um, talking about anarchists. Right. They were talking about people who didn't fundamentally agree with with the, the party line and therefore weren't part of a party uh, program, but we're doing similar programs and could work together, mm-hmm. right? A lot of yeah. the, you know, and you know, a lot of the 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 Bolsheviks had their hands in it in one way or another. They had people who were part of non-Bolsheviks organizations and 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 still part of the party, so that there was there was some interplay. And I think you know, taking that, we for some reason, and it's it's changed. The Marxist Leninist America have changed a lot, 
I've followed Twitter for a long time. We are way less sectarian than we used to be. Yeah. Um, we're really, we're, we are more celebratory, like, you know, uh, but like understanding that, you know, that the, the idealist perspectives think that we're just going to have a party, right? Like the, we're just going to found a party and we're just going to have a revolution, uh, that, that spans the entire U S is very unlikely. We could see oh, yeah. that. Right. It's going to be a mess. Yeah. <laughs> really? So, you know, so we're going to have to work in that mess in one way or another. Right. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I have my skepticism about even, I feel like if a revolution were to kick off in the United States of America, um, you would not, you would not be able to, I would love to be proven wrong, but I do not think that the United States of America could be just uh, completely converted into uh, a decolonial, a decolonial union of uh, socialist states, right? No chance. I don't think. I don't think you could get fifty socialist socialist states out of this baby. This thing would have no. to be broken apart and like balkanized the way they're trying to do China right now. But that's a different discussion. Um, <laughs> as long as it's not that stupid railroad map on Twitter right now, I'm okay. Uh, balkanize it however you want. Just not that map. <laughs> yeah, it would have to be. It would have to be something that's balkanized so that you could not. Get this big fascist superpower back up, just so that it could be something that could be conducive to an intercommunalist project that we're talking. about. Yeah, we should actually talk about our project. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I would please God because it's. I mean, no, and this, this, but for real, this is this is awesome, and and thank thank you for for all of this. But please, please talk about what you got. Now that you've all heard them talk about the theory like me and david do on a on a week-to-week basis hear what actual people on the ground are fucking doing with all this theory (laughs) oh boy Lou, you want to start off first yeah so we're doing a lot and and i guess i'll just give people an update from covid uh 19 the the attempt at a united front um we created basically a hotline which now people can call us for resources we've done i don't even with, and this is with our regular work. I don't even know all the things we provide money. We've provided rent. We've provided food. We've provided pretty much anything last because we, we believe in mass Picked lines. Picked up groceries. Yeah. We believe in mass lines. So groceries. Uh, God, there's so many things. But we, we believe in mass lines, so we believe that the people give us direction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that Especially at the beginnings, there's no way to take – the only way to get in front of the people is to let the people navigate the organization, right? to to push us forward so that's one thing that the COVID 19 has kind of organically developed into Mm -hmm. um it just happens it's become like you know uh uh, a struggling person's hotline really um we'll do roar which if you'd like to give an update on that cam um, oh yeah roar roar we've expanded our roar we we used to just traditionally do roar only on saturday but now we do it on wednesday and saturday and roar is and it and I, everyone, oh, thank you. No, I was going to say, everyone Everyone should listen to the RevLeft episode to understand this, but uh, explain what Roar is. Yeah, Roar is Red Red Wagon Action and Relief. It's a, it's a program that we have mm-hmm. through uh, through Well, where we go out, do mutual aid to the houseless, give them care packages that we've assembled. And also we do canvassing in black and brown neighborhoods, specifically uh, impoverished ones. And we give out financial aid and we tell them about the program that we have with with woe we also tell them that we do advocacy on their behalf with police brutality because you know some a lot of these folks within these neighborhoods do experience uh, police occupation because that's just how the u.s empire rolls baby and so we tell them like hey look if y'all dealing with any of that nonsense 
let us know and we can propagandize about it and tell the entire world about this nonsense y'all are dealing with if you tell us about it and basically trying to uh, unite working class folks, uh, houseless folks, incarcerated folks, immigrants all together on the same basis to build independent political power. So it's not parity because there is an expectation of building a, a political apparatus through this. That's that's what separates you from charity. Charity is just giving things out. Mutual aid is an exchange, right? So we're not just giving things out and being like, oh, well, here you go. We're a red charity. We're Santa Claus. Um, but we, we do definitely do this out of, kind of kindness of our hearts, but we're also doing it out of self-defense because a unified people is self-defense against a very unified state, right? We're in the middle of Greensboro. City Council has proven time and time again the only people they care about is their ruling class cohort, their their real estate donors, all all, all those jokers who are give, giving all the donations to the folks on City Council. That's who they listen to. They don't listen to us. And it's self defense when we do mutual aid. It's self defense when we when we do financial aid. It's self defense when we do all of them because then we can get folks on the same line to understand why it is we are what we, why it is we are the way we are. Because a lot of times when we give out stuff to houseless folks, they'll say, okay, that's cool, but why are you doing this? And then we explain it, and they're just like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Like, sometimes you get so used to being afraid of talking about communism in explicit yeah. terms because you think you're going to turn people off. But you know, sometimes you got to remember, oh, yeah, people in, the pro people in the lump of proletariat, they already about it. Just like, oh, okay, why don't you just say that earlier? <laughs> yeah. And I think yeah. you just, and, and I think this is, it's almost terrifying that we got this far into it and didn't mention the phrase lump and proletariat, but I feel like this is almost a, a, and again, you got to understand works we've read up to this point. So things, if, if the only person that ever, you know, someone's only listened to Mark's madness, the things they've heard are capital state and rev imperialism, wretched of the earth on practice by Mao. And uh, if they went over and listened to the other episode, they heard some of black Bolshevik, but so, so we kind of have this idea of who's going to lead the revolution and, you know, the peasant question, all that kind of stuff. What was, uh, what was Huey P. Newton's view on who was going to lead the revolution? Cam, could I take this? Yeah, absolutely. So just, a, uh, it's the lump in proletariat, but we're, I think we're going to need to address it starting with Marx because a lot of people seem confused. And I think it's because they're frozen and crystallized into what the lump in proletariat is. So Marx identified the lump in proletariat as those who were peasants or removed from their land, but weren't able to integrate into the new system of proletariatized into capitalists, basically, or in, into the into the new capitalist system. They weren't, they didn't become proletariats, right? Um, uh, so he didn't see them as a revolutionary class. It's famous that Marx believed that the proletariat, and this is in Europe, in the time of the developing, you know, industrial revolution, right? Uh, he saw them as the, the revolutionary class because their capability just to freeze up the mechanisms, right, mm -hmm. of capital. Now, uh, I'm going to fast forward to Fanon. I, I know that Mao looked at the lump and proletariat more seriously, and so did anybody, you know, after Marx, really, because they had revolutions that were fundamentally based in peasantry, right? So theory had to change, right? Um, because, you know, the, the, countries that had revolutions uh like 75 percent of their population were peasants they weren't proletariats <clears throat> so fast forward to fanon what fanon's talking about when he says the lump of proletariat he's talking about a very similar thing as marx but he's talking about you know he's talking about within a colonial establishment right so 
And the difference is for them is that the proletariat or the lumpy proletariat is generated from moving from peasantry and being locked out of the new colonial establishment, right, by a foreign power. That's very different, right? They're not like so they already know what it is. And because they were locked out of the colonial power psychologically, and this is really what Fanon, what's important about Fanon is psychologically their interests are aligned with revolution by nature, like because they get nothing from the establishment. So th- those are, you know, those are two analysis of the lump in what Huey, who's obviously well informed on this is talking about is a very developed lump in proletariat, one that exists here and is developing and growing and, and changing. Right. The, you know, a lot of people hate on the lump in proletariat because of their criminalization um, you know, houseless people. I'll go ahead and identify what what Huey's just claimed to be the lump in was the incarcerated and the houseless, and we include also the poor migrant, right? Um, this population has changed, and from it is already opposed. You know, black and brown people who've been locked out of the capitalist infrastructure, right? Moved into ghettos, um, you know, pushed out by gentrification, right? And developed criminal organizations that are actually separate from the state. Right. These are criminal organizations here in the U.S. fundamentally exist as separate entities from the state. And and Huey's point is that the lump in proletariat is going to grow because of the nature of capitalism as it starts to die, as it starts to fail, because it has to right? they create more people who live on the streets or more people who live in the prisons that eventually. Right. Those people, you'll have an amass of a class that's strong enough to destroy the capitalists. And he believed that these people were also the best specifically because they have created institutions and ran institutions and live environments already separate from the state. So creating a liberated zone, right, or liberated institutions, right, or something that naturally comes to them. If you don't mind uh, me jumping off too about like you were talking about how he saw it as something that was going to grow because, I mean, it was uh, and is and you can see that right now. I mean, part of the lump of proletariat is the imprisoned. Well, when we talk about the imprisoned industrial complex, where has that gone since 1974? It's gotten a little bit it's bigger. Yeah. <laughs> it's also been commoditized for labor. That's um, the huge, mm-hmm. that's the biggest part. And houselessness is skyrocketed into an epidemic. I mean, it's no longer ignorable. I mean, in just a couple of months when we were doing the, uh, you know, Marcus Dion Smith, Justin for Marcus Dion Smith campaign mm-hmm. when it really started. The attitude I've seen with the public, the towards houselessness to now has changed because now they know that there's people behind them and now they know more about like the situation causing houselessness. Things have, I mean, I, you know, I started off as intercommunalist just as a practical sense of where to get started. But as things have developed, right, I take Huey more serious every day because everything seems to confirm that, you know, what Huey's saying. That the lumpen oh, proletariat okay. will be the revolutionary class. Yeah. Well, and and who else in this? I mean, Huey was. There are not many native. I don't want to say native American. There are not many theoreticians in America who were as connected to the base as as Huey was. I I mean, again, we read Harry Haywood in in Black Bolshevik, but but Huey is far more contemporary, and and of of course we're gonna. Of course you should gravitate to this. He un. That's a person that organized a party and understood his conditions in this country. And that's something that we keep kind of, and Huey brought up again and again, that you're not going to understand the, what's going to come next. If you're not in the middle of it, if you're not out in it. And, and that's where, again, the, the work you guys are doing, I think is, 
again, that we, we said there's only so much you can sit and have post wars for days and read books for days, but uh, an hour out actually actively working in the community with yeah. these, with, with people and, and understanding their conditions is, is going to be more than any of that. And Huey understood that fundamentally. And we got a long way to go still because we've been around uh, in July. It's going to be two years. But yeah. we, we, I think we've covered a lot of ground and we're, we still got a lot more ground to cover. And we're, we're humble about that, but we'll also have to celebrate the, the wins that a lot of working class folks have gotten and you know, to keep pushing for more, right? Yeah. 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 Yep, that's definitely, you got to keep pushing, comrade. <laughs> and that's, it's I mean, exciting. always. Yeah, yeah. Tomorrow we'll be going out just like we always do. Yeah. Um, and and serving the people and producing propaganda and asking questions and you know um hopefully our one of our campaigns recently talking about development because covid a lot of our campaigns got killed right and then we were behind this whole like black up or uprising which i imagine a lot of people were you know we went out we got to see it observe it analyze it try to understand it be part of it but you know it we weren't organizing yeah. it right so it only lasted so long. The police in Greensboro are, and the establishment in Greensboro is ready to brutalize people, arrest them, and lie. Yeah. Like, lie about what happened. You know, so it's, I think the, the, the uprising of, you know, the night uprisings we saw in Greensboro, I think are over at this point. I don't know if they're going to continue. That's just a prediction. I could be wrong. Right. I would love to be <laughs> Yes. <laughs> So would I. <laughs> because I think, I think strategically now would be a better time for there to be more uprisings, given that the fact that the curfew had been rescinded. Um, yeah. But it will take a lot of radical organizing. And one thing that we did observe through the protests are there are a mixture of, of there's a lot of cognitive dissonance, right? Yeah. Among, mm-hmm. among, among a lot of the folks out there, because a lot of them are angry. A lot of them want to tear the system down, but then a lot of them, because of the propaganda that we've all been inculcated with tells us, well, no, there's something worthy, worthwhile about preserving this. Hey, let's look, no justice, no peace. We're organizing a peaceful protest. Oh, okay. Yeah. So which one is it? Do you want no justice, no peace? Or do you, or oh, do you yeah. want peaceful And there are different forces. Like some folks are more explicitly like, all right, man, listen. The police get too close to my face. I'm, I'm gonna swing, even though I am a revolutionary. I maybe don't stand too close. To <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's no, but something we, to point out. Yeah, there was yeah please. Yeah, go ahead. Just a, I think there's two. Just the development of the protests. I've been. Oh yeah. Um, two different ones, right? That were yeah. very, very different. Um, and I should probably share those experiences because I don't get a lot of time to actually tweet. Uh, and I'm kind of biased the way you're gone but the so there were people breaking things and stuff and, and anybody that was out there was at night so there's two groups of protesters originally that were struggling um during the day but peaceful protest kind of obviously overtakes during the day but at night from what i could tell predominantly lump in proletariats were were running it right to break stuff to hurt capital right to partially take out rage but, I mean, in lots of ways, they were much more effective. <clears throat> and then there was another protest I went to, like, I think the following day, when curfew hit, mm-hmm. right, um, where I was stuck with a very small group of, um, of college, college protesters who were very prepared to be peaceful. 
and we were just pushed i mean by an army of cops off the street like we like i saw a cop and this is the parameter i think all the gpd was there that night prepared for this very easy stand down um prepared the one police officer i saw this kid in an american flag a very young kid talking to a police officer with the police officer with his gun drawn like behind his thigh right he was ready to shoot this kid and this kid had no idea like none and that was very that was very frightening we also had like white suppressors running at the borders and i think in the last couple of protests correct me if i'm wrong cameron uh but but, um i think six uh six um young black men were arrested for carrying you know things like bats to protect themselves i mean obviously from the white supremacists sure. with guns, white supremacists right? Were, that everybody knew about. White supremacists posted yeah. on Facebook explaining what they wanted to do to, yeah. to quote unquote BLM and Antifa. They rolled around <laughs> in the back of a truck with AR 15s in tow. Like, hey, we about, to, we about to have some fun tonight. These type of white supremacists, and you know, they get to go along. Uh, the police said they were going to check in on it. But when black folks come out with, 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 with anything, to defend themselves. And this, and this goes back to prove what the purpose of policing is in the United States of America and what the purpose is of how capitalism racializes whole entire groups of people and already predetermines who's going to be criminalized, especially in the United States of America. When it comes down to black folk trying to defend themselves, well, that's a that's a threat to capitalism, that's a threat to whiteness. So whiteness and white supremacy must be reinforced. So as long as yeah. you have broken bands of white supremacist vigilantes and white supremacist vigilantes who put on blue uniforms, black uniforms, in the case of the Greensboro PD, well, we're going to have the status quo. So anything that questions the status quo, anything that threatens the status quo, the law can get very, 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 very um, flexible. <laughs> you see how flexible the law is, and you see how much those 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 liberal pronouncements of, of civil rights really, really mean when you threaten capital. All, all, all mm-hmm. the limit stuff, all that, all those amendments that you are that you are supposedly guaranteed. Yeah, all right. There's a there's a zeroth amendment. That is white supremacy. <laughs> that must be protected at all costs. That comes with all the other. No, yeah. I mean, that that makes perfect. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, just going back. One of the things that we've come to a conclusion too is like, I mean, understanding and analyzing is the goal. You know, we're we're building a community and we're we're hoping to establish liberate zone. Obviously, we're trying to get the people behind us, and there are, we do have a lot of supporters in the community. I mean, we've yeah. been pretty effective at that. Um, but eventually, we're talking about a national level. We're talking about one of these uprisings again. You know, this uprising seemed to be informed by the Ferguson uprising. They it seems that things have been learned, right? But it's come to the conclusion that you know, and I think I think it's it's touching on people. This will eventually this like it's proven that this cannot come to a peaceful end right it just can't you know as much and you know there's like there's like marxist leninists online and and anarchists online and leftists who like you know romanticize violence and weird stuff but it's just come kind of like like no, i don't think anybody really wants a people's war but the next steps oh, yeah. i think is that you know i mean i want it now but that's because that's the only reason it could happen right I think this confirmed that eventually it'll be a people's war and that people really need to be taken. You know, when Mao says we have to be able to move through the people like fish, just like yeah. the fascists are able to seem to be able to move through the police like fish. Yeah, right. When it comes down, like when we're organizing now, we have to keep that in mind that that's an eventuality. Yeah. Right. If we like it or not. We got to be realistic um, about it. My whole thing is like, look, man. Oh, 
don't want a violent, I don't want a violent confrontation. That's not what I want. I don't look for it. I don't wake up dreaming about it. And there are some folks who think about violence because they romanticize revolution because we're in such we're in such a society where we see so many movies. Now, a lot of leftists even have this movie playing in their head where a revolution is going to look like holding up an AK-47 above your head and everything fading to black. And I'm like, no, that's not what it's going to look like at all. It's going to be bloody. It's going to be smelly. It's going to be sweaty. It's going to be awful. And it's going to be deeply traumatizing. And that trauma is really going to have real world implications for the type of world we're able to build after the revolution. And I say after the revolution, just referencing the event, but the revolution is actually a continuous process that happens after the big battle has been fought and the war has been won. You still got to do the revolution of protecting your institutions, building institutions, building up people who were destroyed and restoring the communities and putting forward justice. Right. That's revolution. That's revolutionary. And you're building you're in the project of building revolutionaries and building revolution constantly, even after the whole people's war happens. But the whole violent process, because we're living in violence every single day. Like mm-hmm. I'm not when I say violence, I'm not belittling the capitalist violence that the everyday violence, ordinary violence that we confront with our everyday existence. I'm just saying the violence that has that that is going to be required to overtake this, because the capitalists have proven time and time again. They see nothing without a struggle. They see nothing without using absolute violence. Like the past two weeks, how many people have died since George George Floyd has died because of confrontations with the police? They're they're not letting up, and they won't let up. They went. We have not been able to wipe our asses with Charmin. We have not been able to have masks readily available. We have not been able to have vaccines readily available. We have not been able to get more than. $1,200 in a stimulus check, but the second that folks start making some windows, they can mobilize all the militarized equipment in the hands of local police so that they can beat us over the head with billy clubs and nightsticks and, and shoot us with rubber bullets. So what does that tell you about the priorities of having a peaceful transition out of capitalism and socialism? Very unlikely. And I just think if they make it impossible for a Latin American, Asian, African country to have social democracy without a violent confrontation, why in the belly of the beast will they just hand it to you because you ask? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that doesn't change people. I don't know why that doesn't convert people. <laughs> like, man, listen, if it, if I could do what the Bernie Sanders just vote, and that's it, I could get socialism on a super predator. Do you not think that's the thing I would pick? Like, look, people think I'm a Marxist in this like, if I want to clown the internet, I'll be a motherfucking liberal like the rest of you motherfuckers. I don't want clown. Clown is a headache. Who wants clown? Who wants that? No one wants clown. No, no, okay. No person who should continue breathing air and speaking. Oh my gosh. I never wanted I'm just not stuck with it. But man, I'm not a Marxist Leninist because I love the clout or oh, I think it sounds cool or oh, I love violence. I'm in and it has some of the best answers to transitioning out of this capitalist state into a socialist state eventually. That's why I'm a Marxist Leninist. Yeah, the and 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 it has the best answer to okay, why is imperialism imperializing? <laughs> That's the way. Like, if I just thought the other stuff could work, the U.S. state, when I'm a black person and I know that, look, 
and, and, I, and I'm, I'm making a really long monologue. I'm going to wrap it up. But so so many black folks have died fighting for reform. Like the whole civil rights movement is a history of black people dying for reform as well as black people dying for revolution. If I'm going to die for something, I'd rather die for revolution than die for reform. That's my whole point. Because too many folks have died for reform already, and it hasn't gotten it hasn't gotten to the ball further down the. In my view, not far enough. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, all right, not yeah, not far enough. And I think that's kind of important to kind of just jump off, uh, you know, Camp's point. Like I'm a I'm a half Korean, half Puerto Rican plumber in segregated South. Like I work in construction with migrants every day. Right. So I think about, obviously I think about quitting, right. It's hard. I mean, we do, as the camp said, we're writing letters to the incarcerated. Um, we're, we're running a woe phone through the week where I'm mostly at work. We're doing two days, sending in resources and we fight. Right. Um, yeah. but there's, and the, you know, when you talk about revolutionary interests, when you talk about yeah. why, it's important to reach out to certain people is because I can't turn around from it because my life's going to look mm-hmm. the same and I can see it's getting worse. Yeah. I'm still going to go to work for my boss, which I've worked through the p- pandemic. I'm mm-hmm. still going to get treated like shit. I'm still going to build mansions like plum mansions for people, right. Who honestly shouldn't, shouldn't exist. Right. Um, and, and I'm going to go home and I want to pay my landlord rent. Yeah. Right. So every, every second that I have, I squeeze into making it clear to people that this is not a situation we should be living in because it's in my interests, mm-hmm. right? And making it clear to people that it's in their interest. That's our goal. Mm-hmm. A lot of the houseless people we talked to, I mean, originally, you know, they weren't really with revolution in that sense. Mm-hmm. Right. But, you know, we mentioned in Rev left, like there was a houseless person talking about how, you know, the black Panthers were communists and the Chinese were funding them. And it was good. good. <laughs> <laughs> Are you <laughs> kidding? <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. Yeah, there's one good. You're trying to explain to somebody else. This is good. We need this. This is good. Support them. They're doing this. This is good. We need this. You know, and I was just like, whoa. And there was one house. There was one other house's guy I was talking to one time. And Red can also attest to this. Were you there, Lewis? I'm not sure. But this Uh, guy was running the litany of like, this guy had a very sophisticated understanding of socialism, explicitly talking about socialism, talking about different He talked about Cornell West, but he also said, the way the police function is to protect private property. That's why city council always deploys the police because they're controlled by real estate interests. And I say houses because a lot of folks, because we've been conditioned to think of houses people as unintelligent. And sometimes you got to constantly be vigilant about these sort of stereotypes you create in your head. And then I realized, hey, I got a better analysis than a lot of people we call but he understood how private property worked, how 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 cops protect capital, and he explicitly called himself socialist and employed a socialist analysis of why he was in our face. And he was talking about, but I don't know if y'all support that type of politics. And we like, yeah, absolutely, we do. Here's our pamphlet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, we didn't even have to. Sometimes part of mass life is uh, biting your tongue and letting the folks talk to you. Because sometimes you you can learn something from just letting people speak. And sometimes, you know, you get so anxious and ready to tell people all about everything. Sometimes folks just want to speak to you. That's part of building community. Yeah. I think conversations. Simple things like, imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> the, me- the cam method. I talk yeah, a lot, unfortunately. Yeah, I yeah. I, I, I'd be sitting around listening a lot. And then sometimes folks are like, Cam, we got to go. We have to actually. Yeah. Cam would be stuck there. Cam would be glued. Yeah. And you know, yes. I, yeah. but it's a, it's all good. I mean, podcast, but I, I do a lot of listening when I'm. Yes, 
that's good. We need sometimes we need a listener. Um, to be real with you, I do a lot of talking on the street. I talk less on the internet. Um, and talking about people, I mean, the, you know, this is just examples of people like they're open, right? I mean, I talked to, I talked to, uh, I'm I'm in a actually four months long debate with a uh, a person who has life, right? That goes by you know code truth, right? Um, and I mentioned George Jackson to him, and he was like, George Jackson's my dude. You know what I'm saying? George Jackson's the per like Ed knows about George Jackson. Read, reads George Jackson, right? Quoting George Jackson. Um, you know, you mentioned you mentioned Huey P. Newton to or George Jackson to someone incarcerated. They know who you're talking about. They're already open. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. They're wait. I mean, it's always the thing. They're waiting for this next step because, as Fanon said, you know, the colonized, right? They keep a machete ready for the colonizer. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's way as y'all point out. There's way more after that section, right? But like they want. They want to be free. Their interests. There's no, you know, as Fanon pointed out, there is no. They have no interest in keeping the establishment existing. You have life in prison. I mean, these people, you know, if we send them money, it's going right back into child support, right? They mm. don't. They have no money. I know a person. He's like in half a million dollars debt with a life sentence. There's no reason for him to believe this system should exist anymore. You know, understanding that, like, it's really easy to talk to people about revolution. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, I don't know. If, did we did we review our work really well, or did we just talk about a lot of theory and and talking about houseless people and incarcerated? Is yeah. it not the same thing? Uh, kind of, <laughs> I mean, we're mixing it up. I mean, it looks, sounds like we're talking about praxis. I think. Right. Yeah. yeah. At, at the end of the day, and and I'm um, so we'll I'll put a hard pause in for this, but like, if if there is anything, basically, what I would say right now is if there's anything that's come up because we're gonna link the Rev Left episode, and we're gonna very you know emphatically encourage anyone listening to this one to listen to that but is there anything that's happened since then that you guys think you haven't talked about that you want to talk about because i think that's the only because otherwise i feel like you guys covered what you do on the ground perfectly there i just i, I anything different that you and, feel like needs updated covered it pretty here. darn well here too you know and oh no it's been it's been great here. and like i said we'll give you guys a cut of what this looks like before it goes out so you can give it your stamp before we, 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 you know, release it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There is an update. Um, I mean, we did have protests here and though they, you know, there's a lot of, I do think the reformists have won in Greensboro. Right. But the city council is changing. They're, they're trying to make themselves seem more progressive. They're hiding. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and that's, I mean, that's something I've never seen through the justice for Marcus Smith um, campaign. And also like we've seen, you know, 2000 people sh chanting, Marcus Smith's name, right? And before that, you know, the people that were really holding it together, really pushing that campaign was just whoa, mm -hmm. right? You know, and I mean, I personally have campaigned at least a thousand people and other comrade of uh, another thousand, right? When it was just us, you know, so things, have, I mean, it's, it's changing. I don't know what the next steps are right now. We're talking about, you know, opening chapters, you know, getting our infrastructure, um, settled right um working on how to conduct you know internal a lot of what we're trying to address right now is internal issues right just how do we communicate as our organization grows how do we actually you know um engage in principled struggle right and what are our next steps we'd hope to open a meal we keep discussing it right so right now we're going into the as as uh, cameron said we're going to neighborhoods um and providing gift cards to people right um, to open their ears, and then we're hoping to start providing meals in these neighborhoods. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, and they also have connection to the WoFone, so they can call us for anything, 
right? From, you know, harassed by the police to, yo, could you go pick up my groceries? So that's really the update. That's where we've gone. I guess uh, the the one other thing. Oh, go ahead. I said we sort of become like a a jack of all trades um, (laughs) sort of situation where it is like so (laughs) part of being in an organization is like being on a million different uh, committees. (laughs) <laughs> like, it's like oh yeah Cam you're supposed to do this I'm like oh yeah that's right I, I am supposed to write that up alright we working on bylaws okay yeah I gotta work on bylaws alright okay so going out the road this week <laughs> trying to keep up with all that it's, it's, it's fun because as the organization grows you're like ah oh, man hopefully 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 I get one more person on that mm-hmm. that's organizing so since you guys did talk about opening different chapters, I guess one uh, one last question I I have um, is for people that are interested, whether it is you know when you guys do expand chapters, you know expanding well chapters, whether it's doing something in their organization if they don't do enough for houseless people, uh, maybe you know extending a program for houseless people, um, getting getting the conversation started. Uh, what I mean, obviously, you guys have a lot of experience getting in touch uh, with the houseless community. What uh, what's the best approach for someone if they're just wanting in a cursory stage to get that going in their organization or in a new organization? Cameron, do you mind if I take this? Yeah, absolutely, go ahead. So, if people want to, and it's going to be a requirement, obviously, um, we're we're building the infrastructure to export chapters. But people who want to get involved, I mean, we have a program you can look at with a. That kind of explains our analysis in a more fuller way, not as full as it could be, but in a fuller way. Um, but like, you know, this was just based off the fact, I mean, I, I and a couple comrades, you know, just kind of walked around and tried to get people to go out to the houses and we just gave up and we did it ourselves. The houses <laughs> are going to talk to you, you know, just make sure you have a comrade, at least one, right? Preferably, you know, uh, three others, right? And go ask what they want and then take that. Um, and divide it into things that can be used into a campaign to advocate for their rights and things that you can start providing for yourselves, right? We only take like a dollar dues for meetings. Um, and we were able to provide, uh, I mean, it's expanded now, but we're providing water crackers and, and other materials for a year. You know, just get inst- like you can do it. Yeah. It's not, it's, it, there's an entire infrastructure. The only thing you really have to be careful of is not getting yourself roped into being accused of being a, like a, a charity, right? Right. Cause that's the first thing they're going to assume that you're a charity. But once, you know, having the propaganda ready, the first step is just going out there, asking what they want, dividing that into a campaign that you could launch for their rights, dividing the other side into things that you can meet and start meeting that list and then produce ca- like propaganda, which means you have to know your city. Mm-hmm. Right. You have to be, we had done a lot of preliminary work accidentally because we were chatting the establishment already on a lot of these issues before we went out there. So we had propaganda and thank God the establishment's so terrible, right? Because we can make more propaganda. We can't even make enough flyers oh my God. Of, of the shit that city council, the Greensboro city council does and GPD uh, and, you know, GPD does. There is another illuminating story of the wise man and the fool found in Mao's little red book, a foolish old man went to North Mountain and began to dig. A wise old man passed by and said, why do you dig, foolish old man? Do you not know that you cannot move the mountain with a little shovel? But the foolish old man answered resolutely, while the mountain cannot get any higher, it will get lower with each shovel. When I pass on, my sons and his sons and his sons' sons will go on making the mountain lower. Why can't we move the mountain? 
And the foolish old man kept digging in the generations that followed after him. And the wise old man looked on in disgust. But the resoluteness and the spirit of the generations that followed the foolish old man touched God's heart. And God sent two angels who put the mountain on their backs and moved the mountain. This is the story Mal told. When he spoke of God, he meant the 600 million who had helped him move imperialism and bourgeois thinking. The two great mountains. The reactionary suicide is wise. The revolutionary suicide is a fool. A fool for the revolution in the way that Paul meant when he spoke of being a fool for Christ. What foolishness can move the mountain of oppression? It is our great leap and our commitment to the dead and the unborn. We will touch God's heart. We will touch the people's heart. And together we will move the mountain. And uh, guys, I, I know we've had some good endings, but I don't know if we've ever had one that goddamn good. <laughs> <laughs> this has been the better version of Marx Madness and the version that includes at birth Marxist and at Mal underscore Praxis from Woe. It's also including me, Nathan. Hi. Me, David. Hi. <laughs> we will talk to y'all next week. Bye. 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 Oh. Bye. <laughs>